Amen. Amen. So today, I, I just I feel um, I feel a real um, burden from the Lord to share on something very specific as we, as a church, go through this really intense and, and very glorious time of freedom and deliverance in the Lord. Um, I have a lot of ground to cover today, and so I'm going to try to move through it um, as, as quickly as I can. But I also want to make sure that it's getting into our heart. I encourage you to go to the podcast um, afterwards and listen to it again. Um, you can find that on our church Facebook page if you're not, haven't been a part of, haven't signed up or joined our, our church group page. Or we have a, and also a, another, just the page. You can get the links for that there. Um, but today, <coughs> I just, I want to, dive into this this word and and really for the for the last several weeks um i've been um i've been preaching about love i've been preaching about radical love i've been preaching about passionate love i've been preaching about aggressive love for god and for people and um i think that if i were to uh, preach about love for the rest of the year i would probably not be able to fully cover the subject you know, why is that? Well, it's because the very essence of God is love. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And I am a firm, firm believer that the way that you and I, any of us, want to achieve a goal like loving God and loving people is to have a very, very clear picture or target of what I want to become or have. I believe that whatever we are aimed at, whatever we focus on, that is what we ultimately become. And to have my eyes squarely fixed on the prize... I believe, is the primary way to becoming something or achieving that goal. 2 Corinthians 3.18 in the New King James Version says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, whatever we keep in focus, we are most likely to become that thing. That's why it's important what you watch. Who you're idolizing in the world. Whatever you're watching, guess what? You're going to start talking, acting, thinking, dressing, whatever is in your gaze. 
And I'm thankful because of what Jesus and Paul and the other apostles gave us. What they gave us was a picture of what we're supposed to become. They gave us a target to aim at. And Jesus himself being the perfect picture of what love looks like. He is our ultimate target. He is the goal. He should be the focus of what love looks like. But there are some times in the Bible when we have to identify things that are the opposite of the goal that we are aimed at. Sometimes the Bible calls us to identify the enemies of the kingdom culture of loving God and loving each other. And that's what I want to share today. I'm going to discuss a specific problem. And before you get all heavy and oh, listen, everything good that happened, it's, it's still good. What I'm about to share about the bad and the negative, those things that is in the word of God that Jesus taught us and Paul taught us, it's okay because we're overcoming. But we have to identify just like Paul did. Just like Jesus himself. Read the book of Revelation. At the end of it all, he comes to all these churches and he goes, I, there's a problem. There's a problem. Oh, here's a problem. Now, I believe most of what we should be doing is talking about the solution and, and the target. But today, the Lord has directed me that we need to uncover and unmask one of the problems that is an enemy to loving God. It is an undermining of the culture of loving God and loving each other. And the reality of this is that it's nothing new. It's been a problem since the first disciples of Christ. Since the, the man himself was on the planet showing his perfect love. The guys who were hanging out with him were getting it wrong. So, so that's, that's hope for us. <laughs> but what I want to talk about today, what I want to address, what I want to uncover is this thing of Christian curses. And much of what I'm going to share today, much of what I'm going to share, it's, it comes from a book written by Prophet Dennis Kramer. And it's a book called Breaking Christian curses now i realize that the term christian curse sounds like an oxymoron you know i mean it's like isn't a curse you know something only witches and warlocks do well certainly to they they certainly do engage in that kind of behavior um, but it's not limited to those types of people So look at James chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. It says, With the tongue 
we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings. And I'm going to, this is the NIV. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in the image of God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Now, who's he talking to? Us, Christians, brothers and sisters. Now, it's very interesting, this word curse in this passage. Because what it doesn't mean is he's not just, he's not talking about, you know, bad language. You, you know, you use some four-letter words. Although that's a problem. And I'm not saying that just because this doesn't talk about that, that you're off the hook. We'll get to that in another message. <laughs> this word curse is the Greek word katara. And it means literally an appeal to some supernatural power to inflict injury or destruction on someone or some group. Katara, the Greek word katara means an appeal to some supernatural power to inflict injury or destruction on someone or some group. James is telling us right here, he's saying that people, Christians, have the potential to bless someone and they have the power to curse someone. And this is the evidence that we need right here. So today I'm going to provide us with some scriptural support on how we as Christians curse each other as well as how we can get free from these curses and stop participating ourselves in cursing others. Does anybody want that kind of freedom? Well, in Dennis's book, he outlines two major forms of Christian curses. The first one he identifies is what he calls just plain old Christian witchcraft. And he defines Christian witchcraft as the spiritual manipulation and control of other Christians. Christian witchcraft, the spiritual manipulation and control of other Christians. And the other major form that he identifies is what he calls Christian cannibalism. And he defines Christian cannibalism as the spiritual devouring of other Christians. So we have Christian witchcraft, and we have Christian cannibalism. Now, here's the thing for all you Bible people who love the Word, who read it, who study it, who know it. Guess what? Neither of these words are in there. They're not. These are terms that have been created to describe an overall a general problem, just like the word rapture. 
Everybody knows what that means, but you know what? That word is nowhere in the Bible. There is not one word, rapture. It is a word that we use to describe an event, an activity, a happening. So what Dennis has done is he's created these two terms, Christian witchcraft, Christian cannibalism. And they're simply just terms that are used to describe some specific verses and activities that we can clearly see within our Bible. So let's look at what Dennis calls Christian witchcraft. Now again, he, Dennis defines Christian witchcraft as the misuse of supernatural power for the purpose of manipulating, controlling, and destroying another Christian. And the way this happens, he says, is when a Christian attempts through prayer, through prophetic words, through something they say, they attempt, whether it's to the person directly or just a, a prayer that they pray to the Lord, where they attempt to uh, impose their own will on another Christian. Then it says that when we, when we engaged in that kind of prayer and that kind of prophecy, that we are practicing Christian witchcraft. And he says many times that it is, it is rooted in self-rule, it's rooted in self-will, and self-importance. And the goal of all forms of witchcraft, Christian or otherwise, is the same. To get or have my own way. Or to impose my will over someone else. Now, initially, Christian witchcraft becomes, it's, it's a fleshly thing. And that's why Paul, that's what he meant when he called witchcraft a work of the flesh. But frequently, however, it evolves from just a fleshly problem and it becomes a truly spiritual activity that ultimately ends up drawing on actual demonic power. James chapter 3 and in verse 14 it says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Listen, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. He's talking to Christians. So how does this get accomplished? How do Christians use this? How do we engage in witchcraft against each other? We like to pull out the tools of the trade that are otherwise very good and very proper. For example, one of the tools is dreams, visions, prophecies. 
Now, those are wonderful things that God gives his people. They are very appropriate, and when they come from the very Spirit of God, and they're used properly to build each other up, they are wonderful gifts from heaven. But when we pervert their use, drawing upon a spirit other than the Holy Spirit, maybe my own spirit, maybe a demonic spirit, when we pull from some other source, we then misapply these beautiful gifts and we conduct them in a destructive manner. And at that point, we have crossed the line from hearing God to hearing from myself, or worse yet, hearing from a demon. In Christian witchcraft, all spiritual activity, meaning dreams or visions or prophecies, whatever, they all appear the same outwardly. But the source from which they are drawing that power is no longer God. Instead, we end up using these Christian, uh, our Christian weapons to destroy each other and to deceive ourselves into thinking that God is giving us these varied forms of revelation. So actually, these false dreams, these visions, prophecies, even certain doctrines that people develop, they're based in that witchcraft spirit because they don't, originate from God. They come, they start from our flesh. You see the danger of walking in the flesh. Anything that is essentially destructive when directed against another Christian, anything that takes away from the life of another person is of a witchcraft spirit. Another way this happens is through prayer. If you ever want to get a great snapshot of the condition of someone's heart, listen to how they pray. If they pray defeated, guess what's in their heart? Defeat. If they pray judgment, guess what's in their heart? Judgment. If they pray angry all the time, guess what's in their heart? They're angry. The condition of our heart is always reflected in the spirit of our prayers. And our prayers, if they are misguided and they come from our soul or for, from demonic sources, they can become an attempt to prostitute God to do our dirty work. While at the same time keeping our self-righteousness. You know, our hands are clean in the process. Oh God, you judge them. Even prayer, listen, prayer can become an instrument of cursing. If our heart is not right with God, it 
can become a curse and you not even know it. See, when a, a Christian has evil intent towards another Christian, they can, in prayer, invoke a higher power other than God. And begin risk birthing a curse against someone. The nature of a person's prayers, the way they pray, it determines whether God or the devil is going to answer this prayer. Someone's going to answer. Because the Bible tells us your words bring life or they bring death. And if you think the, 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 the simple ones don't matter either, the Bible says that idle words will be judged. So someone's answering every prayer you pray. Every one. Father or the other God. Because God is never, ever, ever, ever going to answer a prayer that brings a curse upon another person. Never going to happen. You will never get his cooperation. You will never get his help in manipulating the will of someone else to bend to yours. Never, no, not ever, never. This kind of prayer, this manipulative witchcraft, it's demonic. And only a demon, not a loving God, will answer a demonic prayer. So when we pray, we have to ask the questions like, you know, with what intent are you praying for someone else? What is the nature of these prayers that you're praying? Who's even answering your prayers? We have to be aware. We have to be guarded. We have to be sure. And God forbid, if you are witnessing answers to your demonic prayers against another Christian, remember, we will be held responsible as the one who opened the door of hell onto that person's life. So how do we know if our prayers are heavenly or demonic? Well, Dennis says in his book, he says, a demonic prayer is any prayer that is self-serving, self-promoting, self-loving, self-ruling, self-righteous, unloving, uncaring, prayers of judgment. If it's vindictive or hateful or proud or arrogant, that prayer came from hell. Any such prayer is anti-God, it is anti-Christ, and it is of the devil. So, if a prayer has any motivation or goal other than God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven... You are not praying from heaven's perspective. 
And listen, these prayers can be as simple and what we may think would be as benign as, you know, God, please make that girl like me. Oh, we're chuckling because that's a simple prayer that we probably all prayed in grade school and high school. <laughs> Some of you are probably praying it right now. <laughs> Laugh because you're going to have to get deliverance and forgive that and repent. Or ladies, you know, make that boy like me. You're bending, you're asking God to bend the will of another person to your own. You're in witchcraft. God, make my boss give me a raise. You are trying to bend the will of another to your own. Anytime you use a prayer to bend or sway another person's will to your own, it is demonic in nature. Anytime you pray judgment or harsh correction or even punishment on another person, you have set yourself in the place of God as judge. You have set him off the throne. You said, I will rule here, and I pronounce the judgment. They are wrong. They're in sin. You're on a throne, but it ain't one in heaven. We have to be careful. We have to be careful how we are praying. So let's look at what Dennis calls Christian cannibalism. Dennis defines Christian cannibalism as they willful, conscience devouring and consuming of another Christian by a Christian. I'll say it again. Dennis defines Christian cannibalism as the willful and conscious devouring and consuming of another Christian by a Christian. Another thought he offers on this Christian cannibalism is he says that Christian cannibalism misuses supernatural power in a destructive manner against another Christian. But the reality is, is that it is not the power of God that they are using. And he says that, that Christian cannibalism is, is symbolic of character assassination. Everybody know what character assassination is? You know how to knock someone down a notch by talking about them? When we move into character assassination, however righteous you think it is, you are now a Christian cannibal. What are some ways the Bible says that we do this? Well, one is bearing false witness. Trumping up a story that doesn't even exist. Another one is vicious backbiting. Another one is malicious gossip. 
against those who you're opposed to for one reason or another. Here's a good one, rumor spreading for the express purpose of putting that Christian in a bad light or damaging their reputation. And then there's always the self-righteous dismantling of another Christian through their misuse or, or harmful words and sinful attitudes. Just the way you treat someone spiritually can put you in the place of devouring them. So here's some examples that Dennis put in his book of, of what Christian cannibalism could be. Here's one. He says, hearing half the story and then spreading the information around like you were there. When in fact, your information was only hearsay and it was secondhand information. Here's another way he says, Whenever we uh, disseminate, spread harmful information by the use of negative hints or implications, innuendos, inferences, you know, a suggestion. Well, you know, she's always dealt with that. Well, you know, her husband's been looking elsewhere. Here's another way, spreading your personal negative opinion of another Christian as if your opinion was actual fact. It's a popular one, gaining allies at the expense of any relationship that you may have with that other Christian. Of course, this is a term, this next one is something we throw around in school. Just being two-faced. Talking out of both sides of your mouth. Oh, pastor, we're just, we're, I'm, we're with you. We're, we're, we're just supporting you. We're behind what we're doing. It's just awesome. And then in the home meeting that you and so-and-so meet, well, I just, we're just not doing it right. <coughs> you know? I don't know what this stuff about all this talk about deliverance and RTF. I'm just sick of it. I'm just tired of it. Seriously? Can we talk about something else? Yeah, as soon as you get healed, we'll quit talking about it. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to move on. <laughs> Let's talk about taking the mountains of education and the government and business and entertainment. Let's, let's talk about fun stuff. I'm over it, too. <laughs> but we have to go through where God leads. So I don't care. <laughs> if you're over it, I don't care if I'm over it. <laughs> we're going through it. We're not going over it. Or around it. Or we're not going to just sit and die. I mean, if you want to, I guess you can. But don't do that. Please don't stay in the desert. The rebellious live in the desert. Remember that scripture? And here's another way, just being a hypocrite. Now, let me define a hypocrite for you, first of all, because this word gets thrown around, oh, so much. We love to call everyone hypocrites. Oh, that church is full of hypocrites. Those people are hypocrites. They're a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. Wouldn't you like to be a hypocrite, too? 
So listen, here's the real definition. It, first of all, it is not a Christian who is trying to live a godly life and failing. Amen. That is not a hypocrite. So they got up and they made an effort. They're at least trying with what little little strength they have to just show up to church on Sunday and then they go back to their whatever. At least they're trying, okay? The biblical definition of hypocrisy spoken by Jesus himself is the expectation that someone would do something that you have for someone else to do that you yourself have no intention of ever doing. That is hypocrisy. I will say it again. Jesus, the definition. Now, you, there's nowhere Jesus said definition noun. Okay? It's when he dealt with the Pharisees, if you want to find this. The definition of hypocrisy is when I expect something that, for you to do that I have no intentions of doing myself. That is the biblical definition of hypocrisy. And Jesus accused the Pharisees. He said, you put so many rules and weights on people, you will not even enter in to the truth of the word of God yourselves. That's hypocrisy. When someone expects, oh, you should do that. Oh, you should do that. Really, have you gone through? Well, no. Well, why not? Well, because I just don't have that issue. Or I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm taking care of it on my own. I mean, it gets as crazy as, you know, people who expect other people to go to church, but then they themselves don't attend one. That's, that's, that's literally hypocrisy. <laughs> you should go to church. Oh, yeah, it's good for you to go to church. What church do you go to? Well, I don't. I, I do church at home. Me and, me and Jesus. I'm the only one I can follow, so. <laughs> and it's great leadership, too, by the way. That's right, one accord, because it's me. <laughs> it's just me. I'm always in agreement. All my prayers are getting answered. <laughs> but that's what real hypocrisy is. If I expect something of you that I have no intention of doing myself. It's be, if I was standing up here and said, hey, it's a good idea to tithe. Well, how much do you give? Well, I give what God leads. <laughs> Wait, the, the tithe's a real word in the Bible. It means one-tenth. Yeah, well, you should do that, but I've graduated. <laughs> I'm, I've now, I'm super spiritual. <laughs> you should tithe, I don't need to. That's hypocrisy. Okay? Does that make sense? Do we get it? That's how we cannibalize each other. Hypocrisy. So let's look at a verse in the Bible so we can say, oh, it's there. Good. Thank you. Finally. <laughs> Galatians 5.15, okay? Now I'm going to read this in the Amplified, so if you whatever version you have, I think it's the NIV. We don't have Amplified yet. Here it is. Paul's talking to the church, the church, Christian folk, saved ones in Galatia who had all kinds of problems. And this is one of those moments where he had to say, here's a problem. If you bite and devour one another, 
and partisan strife, the Amplified says, be careful that you and your whole fellowship, the Amplified says, are not consumed by one another. Christian cannibalism. This is what Christian cannibalism is. It is the biting and the devouring of one another. So how does it start? Well, for it to start, a Christian has to first cultivate some very refined gossip skills. From there... Quickly and rather effortlessly, they move right into cannibalism and cursing. In fact, Dennis says it's a natural progression. It's something that's inevitable for the chronic gossiper and the chronic backbiter. It's inevitable. The path you're on. If you gossip and backbite, it is inevitable if you do not repent you will become a cannibal and a cursor. A chronic gossip will graduate into the realm of cursing and usually doesn't even realize he or she has earned their degree in Christian cannibalism. See, that's the problem with cursing. Once you've begun to operate in that realm, you, you get so deceived that you don't even recognize it anymore Dennis says the best way to identify a Christian cannibal is that they don't get along with any others around them he says they're very independent self-sustaining isolated and very warlike everything's a fight it's a battle they tend to isolate themselves because they only see everyone else as sinful and immature and lacking in true revelation. That's, this is, I'm just reading out of the book at this point. <laughs> Some other signs that Dennis says from his book are that they don't like peer relationships. You know, brother to brother, sister to sister, I speak into you, you speak into me. They don't like that. I like to be in charge. He says they also, they don't want to contribute to really being a part of a Christian community. He says they also don't want to cooperate in the spirit of friendship or share common interests or goals. He says they don't like to reconcile because to them, unity, unity actually means doing everything their way or not at all. And listen, churches all over the world are filled with cannibals. And it actually can be easy to spot them. See, they're the ones who are carrying around the trophies of past conquests with them. You know, they're their favorite pastime is connecting with the new people who come to church. New people that come to an area. And then talking about brother so-and-so. Or 
sharing some inside information about sister so-and-so. You know, they like to kind of keep you, you know, informed on whose problems. Who's got what problem? Oh, yeah, did you know she used to be a lesbian? Yeah. That's the mode they love to work in. They love to talk about the problems. Cannibals love to bring new people up to speed on everything wrong with certain people. Or even the church as a whole. They love sharing all the flaws and fail failures of leadership. They love to share about the failure of people in ministry and people in our small groups. And can't believe they let this person lead. Can't believe they let that person preach. Bite, 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 bite. Christian cannibals don't contribute to the solution. They just eat and eat and eat. They're consumers. They'll consume worship because it feels so good. Why do you go to that church if you don't like the leaders? The worship is so good. <laughs> now I'm getting real personal. They consume worship. They consume time. They consume other people. Listen, I'm going to give you this warning. Be very cautious of a person who shares their opinions of others when they aren't serving in any fashion. When they are not actively participating in the solution, be very careful what that person has to say about the community or about other people. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul makes this warning. He says, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened and help the weak and be patient with everyone. Be very careful of someone who's speaking against leaders and they lead nothing. Oh, they won't let me. They won't let me lead. Really? Really? We need lots of help. Paul commands us to stop biting and devouring one another. Christian cannibalism, it is sinful and it is demonic. Now, for those of us who just can't possibly believe that a Christian can be led by two different power sources, one from heaven and one from hell, one demonic, one heavenly, we're going to look at Two very specific examples of this happening. Oh, so simple, so easy to read. Matthew 16, verse 15. Jesus is hanging out with the number one dudes in his ministry. And he asks them a question, who people say that I am? And they to give all these great answers. Well, some say Elijah, some say the prophet, some say blah, blah, blah. And he goes and he looks at Peter right in the face and he goes, hey, what do you say? 
So verse 15, he says, And what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now, skip down to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke God. Hmm. Never, Lord. <laughs> never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You soul-flesh-led guy. (laughs) This is a perfect example of a follower of Christ tapping into two completely different power sources. One from heaven and one satanic. Jesus himself says that Peter received a revelation that was so powerful, it was so profound that the global church of the whole world would be built on this revelation that he got. Ain't none of us been there. No one has been here when that kind of revelation And Jesus says, here's where that revelation came from. That revelation came from my father himself. That's the source of that revelation. And then not a minute later, Peter taps into a satanic power. And he tries to rebuke the very son of God. And Jesus himself identifies the power source and he calls it Satan. Within five minutes, the world's greatest revelation ever known to man. And I'm now rebuking the very Son of God. How does this happen? It's two things. One is selfish ignorance, and the other thing is spiritual pride. Write those down. Selfish ignorance, I want my way, and spiritual pride. See, when Jesus unveiled the plan of God for his upcoming crucifixion in Jerusalem, Peter responded, he said, God forbid, this shall never happen to you. What was the basis for this deception? It was a deadly combination of willful ignorance and a consuming spiritual pride. His actions in that moment were completely self-serving and Jesus knew it. Encountering this, Jesus said to Peter, You are not mindful of the things of God. 
And Jesus immediately addressed Peter's willful and stubborn ignorance. Why did he do that? Because this severe form of ignorance leads to deception. And so instead of a pat on the back, effectively Jesus gave him a kick in the pants. And why did he do that? Because Peter was choosing deception over the known and revealed will of God. Jesus just told them, here is the will of God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die and raise in three days. I've just told you God's will. And Peter, selfishly and in his pride, well, I just had this great revelation that the whole world's church is going to be built on. I'm on a roll. God's endorsing me. He just did. I must be endorsed all the time, right? Everything I think is from God. No. His spiritual pride bit him. And so we have to guard ourselves from those who try to assert what they believe is the will of God for our lives. Especially when it doesn't align with the known will of God. I'm going to say that again. We must guard ourselves from those who try to assert what they believe is the will of God for our lives when we know what the will of God is for our lives. Let's look at another example. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. I'm going to read this from the New King James. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did. But he turned and he patted them on the back. Oh, no, no. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went to another village. Here is another example of this type of deception working in the lives of people who follow Jesus. In fact, James and John go even further down this progression than Peter did. See, their own spiritual ignorance and pride actually motivated motivated them to attempt a curse on an entire region. And incredibly, they thought Jesus would bless it. And, uh, you know, apparently Jesus had been mistreated by the Samaritans, and, and his disciples saw this happening, right? Oh, God is being defied. Two of these guys, James and John, overreact, and they propose their final solution. To this problem. And the Lord himself says. You. 
to not know what spirit you're working under. And then he gives them the reason for his rebuke. He says, the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The will of God. That's the will of God. Save men, not destroy them. Two examples here of Jesus himself and his, with his own followers. In their ignorance and their spiritual pride, they were deceived into yielding to two separate power sources. One from heaven and one from hell. So I want to ask a question. Have you been someone who's bitten and devoured other Christians? My second question is, have any unrighteous judgments been passed against you by other Christians? We've got to take care of this from both ends of the steel. Have destructive words been spoken against you? Have other Christians wanted you to fail? Have they attempted to pray fire down on you? I've had people come to me concerned about this issue of Christian curses, and they make statements like, I feel like I've been the target of some unholy prayers. Or, I've heard things like, I have a lot of fear when I think about what this person is saying or praying about me. Well, it's real. I know because I've been on the receiving end. I know what it's like to be the target of gossip and backbiting and undermining. It's real. And the damaging effects of Christian curses are real. You know, in my own life, I've, I've had to, I've, I've experienced a loss of courage to lead. You know, before my sabbatical, I was ready to quit. I was so overwhelmed and tired of hearing about people talk about each other. So, so tired of hearing people talk about every flaw and weakness that I had as a leader. And if it weren't for the healing I received on my sabbatical, I doubt I would be here right now. This battle is real, and the consequences are damaging. So how do we get free? Well, if you've been on the side of cursing someone else, if you've been a gossip, a backbiter, slanderer and underminer if you love to inform people about other people's sins stop it stop it stop devouring and biting each other the only way forward for you is to humble yourself and repent I have had to repent for the times that I have participated in gossip I've had to repent for the times that I have walked in spiritual pride. But you know, I'm fortunate because I have friends and leaders in my life who will ask me tough questions. 
who, who will pray that God's will be done in my life, not their will. Humility and accountability are the two greatest weapons against ignorance and spiritual pride. So repent and be healed if you have been a part of gossip, backbiting, or undermining other people. Now, if you've been on the receiving end of a Christian curse, Dennis provides a way to get free. This is not the only way. Whatever God does with you, go for it. But I'm going to lay out what he's done. It's effective. It works. But in his book, he shares seven steps. And this is the handout that you're in. It's in your bulletin for you to take home with you and go do warfare. If you've been a victim of Christian curses, first step that Dennis says is reveal. And what he means by that is he says, to reveal means to make known, to show plainly. And so first and foremost, beyond any reasonable doubt in your mind, you need to know if a curse actually exists. So what we do at this point is we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal clearly any and all personal curses. Holy Spirit, is there any curse on my life? Number two, he says, Respond. Choose to respond. Respond to any curse with immediate boldness. Not like, oh, yes, I've been cursed. Oh, it's terrible. I'm not going to get free from this ever. Oh, no, you double your fist in the spirit. You take off the gloves. We're not shadow boxing. We're not working the bag. This is a fight. And with boldness, you go after the curse, not the person. If you respond by attacking the person who cursed you, guess what? Now you're on it. You're in the witchcraft side. That would be you cursing someone else. You have to go on the offensive and you must aggressively go against the curse. Number three is you resist. He says to resist means to withstand the force or effect of something, to fight against it. And we are told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, since the devil is the power behind all curses, to resist the devil is to resist the curse that's on your life. So don't offer, again, a token of resistance. Oh, please stop. I've had enough. And no more. No, you resist actively and you resist militantly. Number four is you release. To release means to free, to, to free from confinement or oppression. And so at this step, you must release yourself from the influence of this curse. Break off any curse. Do it now. Speak against that curse. Cast it down. Cast down all the thoughts that are associated with this curse. That connects with it. And then you guard your spirit 
Number five, you replace. To replace means to restore to a former position. To put something new in the place of something else. So at this point, you can begin to replace the curse with a blessing. Abba, what do you have for me? What is the blessing, the heaven that you have for me to replace this curse that's been on me in my life? Replenish your life. You have to speak blessing over it because someone spoke cursing over it. Maybe you spoke your own curse over yourself. You're not just a victim of other people. We're a victim of our own stuff. Whether you or someone else spoke it, you've got to speak blessing right back at it. In fact, go and ask some people who are faith people, people who believe God and believe the word and the will of God and get them to help pray for you. If you're going to get real blessing, go after it. Go after godly leaders. Ask them, pray for me. Pray a blessing over me. Anyone. Number six, you're going to return. To return means to go or come back, to send back to an earlier state. So now you are ready to return blessing on all those who may have cursed you. Bless those who curse you and overcome evil with good. And so in your mind and in your heart, using your mouth, you are going to bless everyone that you can think of. Who has cursed you? And these are not backhanded blessings. God, convict them. Bless them with conviction. God, I pray that you would reveal the sin in their life. That's what got you in the place you're at. My will be done. Because I know what their problem is. I already judged them, God. Just get in and do my dirty work for me. You're not, that's not a blessing. No, you actually, you actually bless them. You're like, God, increase. Favor, revelation. Pray, pray the Bible. Let the spirit of wisdom and revelation be on them. God, truth and light and love fill this person's life. Bless them financially. Bless their marriage. Bless their kids. Bless their job. That's a prayer of blessing. Anything you would want someone to pray for you, go ahead and pray for them. You're going to pray for them, not against them. You're going to pray that the will of God be done. Thy will be done, not my will be done. Let there be no nastiness in your prayers. And listen, this is only possible as you trust the Spirit of God within you. But it is possible. And listen, this exciting step will bring such a tremendous freedom and wholeness to your life. Why? Because you're acting like Jesus now. Jesus taught and lived forgiveness. He said, forgive our trespasses as we have forgiven those that trespass against us. You just made a statement. You just equaled. You said, forgive me 
for whatever degree I walk in forgiveness of others. You just connected them when you pray the way Jesus told you to pray. Pray and speak God's maximum blessing over your enemies. And then number seven, you're going to restrain. To restrain means to limit or keep under control. Finally, the la- you have to restrain yourself from any unchristian thoughts or behaviors. You have to. You have to engage your will and not be a gossip. Not be a backbiter. Not speak things over people. You have a will. You have to use it. Restrain yourself. Here's how to do it. You walk in love towards those who have cursed you. Walk in the light. Walk in the light that God himself has given you. Pledge before God that you will stay free from bitterness and resentment or unforgiveness. Anything that wants to enter your heart, you have to say, God, I commit, I want to stay free from these things. And I know the, the, the justice thing that sometimes we have is for revenge, but you know what? That's not the justice of the Lord. You have to exercise restraint, not revenge. And then you're not going to look back. You're going to continue walking in light and love. And you're going to stand watch over your mind. You're going to watch over your tongue. And you're going to watch what gets in your heart. Loving God and loving people is the single most greatest rule for life. And we've got to stop biting and devouring each other. We have to stop praying according to our own will. And we've got to get free from Christian curses. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand up. We're going to pray. And then we're going to turn the music on. And if you need to come to the altar, or maybe you do it at your seat and turn around and kneel, whatever, But if you need to come do business with God, repent for whatever he convicts you of and cursing, backbiting, cannibalizing, praying prayers that weren't from heaven, but they were your own, then repent. Do it now. Lunch will wait. It's not worth being at odds with God and each other. Deal with it. And if you're here and you feel like you've been the the receiver of that, then just, God, break it in the name of Jesus. So, Father, right now in the name of Jesus. Oh, God, thank you for the river that washes us clean, that gives everyone a, a fresh, clean slate if they choose to be forgiven. God, we just ask today that you would come And begin to do this deep work in breaking these curses off of our lives, off of our church, God, off of our city. Everything that's been said against this city, God, we repent for participating in those statements.
Forgive me, God, for gossip, for backbiting, for undermining, Father. Forgive me for those things. In Jesus' name. And I pray blessing over those who've cursed God, who have spoken against me, who have spoken against our church, who have spoken against our city. God, I bless them. Pour out favor and mercy and grace, God, upon those. Let the spirit of wisdom and revelation to come forth, God. Spirit of might and counsel be upon all, God. For you love this city. You are the God of this city, God. And we bow our hearts and we humbly come and ask you to forgive us, Lord Jesus. Come save our city, Lord. Save the youth of our city. Save the families of our city, God. Save the marriages. Save the the parent and child relationships, God. Speak blessing. Newcastle is a place where families get healed. Newcastle is a place where where divorces get averted. Marriages are restored in this town. Drug addicts, they come to Newcastle to get healed, freed, and delivered. This is a place where, where the educational system excels above all standards. This is a city where parents engage in their children's education. This is a city where parents say yes to being moms and dads. This is a city where we love our neighbor. the city that will display the glory of God city of refuge a city on a hill God that's what Newcastle is to you it is what it is to us this land is married this land is beautiful this is a place where drug dealers can't make a living the city where drug dealers become preachers and they become healers and they become bringers of life they start peddling the gospel here try some joy today did you get your joy no I'm, I'm a little down here's some joy it's free when's the peace coming in oh I've got some at the house come on is a city where crooks become the most honest people on the earth businessmen and women they walk in integrity they have god-given ideas they have inventions they have business ideas they have increase they they supply 
It's the city where the arts flourish. Singers and dancers and musicians and painters and sculptors who come to glorify the Lord, they find us. And they come here and they express the glory of the Lord through their art. That is what this city is, God. That is who we are. We are participators and cooperators with your will, God. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, God, for the work of your son, Jesus, the Messiah. We bow to him. So, Father, I pray you seal this work. God, do battle against divisive spirits in the name of Jesus. God, come and fight. Like smoke is driven away, Lord, drive your enemies away. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Every word spoken in judgment, the Lord himself will rebuke. We bless you, God, for this day. Be with us as we go, Father. Any of those who need to come to the altar, Lord, meet them there. If they stay at their seat, meet them there. If they go to their car, meet them there, God. Just encounter us today and cleanse us from Christian witchcraft Cleanse us from Christian cannibalism. Come forth, God. Thank you and we bless you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to come to the altar, do it now. If you want prayer, the altar team will be here. If you need to talk, go to the foyer. If you need to repent, repent. Be blessed.